Isaiah chapter 28. All the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley of those overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has one who is mighty and strong, like a storm of hail, a destroying tempest. Like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he casts down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim will be trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is on the head of the rich valley, will be like the first ripe fig before the summer. When someone sees it, he swallows it as soon as it is in his hand. In that day, the Lord of hosts will be a crown of glory and a diadem of beauty to the remnant of his people. And a spirit of justice to him who sits in judgment and strength to those who turn back the battle at the gate. These also reel with wine and stagger with strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are swallowed by wine. They stagger with strong drink. They reel in vision. They stumble in giving judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit with no space left. To whom will he teach knowledge? And to whom will he explain the message? Those who are weaned from the milk and those taken from the breast? For it is precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little. For by people of strange lips and with a foreign tongue, the Lord will speak to his people, to whom he has said, this is rest, give rest to the weary, and this is repose, yet they would not hear. And the word of the Lord will be to them precept upon precept, precept upon precept, line upon line, line upon line, here a little, there a little, that they may go. And fall backward and be broken and snared and taken. Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, you scoffers who rule this people in Jerusalem. Because you have said we have made a covenant with death and with Sheol, we have an agreement. When the overwhelming whip passes through, it will not come to us, for we have made lies our refuge, and in falsehood we've taken shelter. Therefore, thus says the Lord God Behold, I am the one who is laid as a foundation in Zion, a stone, a tested stone, a precious cornerstone of sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in haste. And I will make justice the line and righteousness the plumb line. And hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overwhelm the shelter. Then your covenant with death will be annulled and your agreement with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, you will be beaten down by it. As often as it passes through, it will take you. For morning by morning, it will pass through. By day and by night, it will be sheer terror to understand the message. For the bed is too short to stretch oneself on, and the covering too narrow to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as on Mount Perizim, as in the valley of Gibeon. He will be roused to do his deed. Strange is his deed, and to work his work, alien is his work. Now therefore do not scoff, lest your bonds be made strong. For I have heard a decree of destruction from the Lord God of hosts against the whole land. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention and hear my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he has leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat and rose and barley in its proper place, and emmer is at the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever when he drives his cartwheel over it. With his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. As for God, his way is perfect. 
The word of the Lord is flawless. Amen. Chapter 28 turns a corner in Isaiah from the first section to the second. For 27 chapters, the prophet's effort has been to try to open the people's eyes to their own condition. It's been easy for Judah to see what's wrong with her brother Israel. But when it comes to honestly assessing her own sinful condition, I think we all know how hard that can be. They're in rebellion against God, not in the visibly dramatic fashion yet, more like the way it normally looks. They will do the right religious things from time to time. They know the right Bible answers. But when push comes to shove, they'll also live the way they want to live. They boast, but not in the Lord. When they need answers, they don't look to God's word. And when things get really tough, when they desperately need help, they turn to not God. It's for this covenant disobedience that they will come under judgment. On the earthly plane, their nation will go into captivity and eventually cease to be. And on the spiritual plane, every individual who does not turn to God in repentance and forgiveness will be judged and condemned. This makes the first section of Isaiah not the most joyful read. But scattered throughout were those tokens of the gospel. God would announce within that judgment his plan to save a remnant for himself. The nations of Israel and Judah may lose out on the blessings of the covenant, but there will be some who by God's power persevere. And when they turn to him for salvation, when they walk in his ways by faith, they will be blessed. That's God's promise. And chapters 28 through 35 are God's reassurance to his people through Isaiah that he not only has the will, but also the power to keep that promise. The world, the devil, our idols regularly make us second guess our faith. They make us fearfully wonder what it's costing us to follow God. The not-gods that we turn to for salvation and blessing try to make us think that turning to God instead, trusting in him alone, will cost us blessing. It will put us at risk. All around you in life is the message that life with God is something less. Less than what you could otherwise have. And yet God has promised his people life. And life abundantly. Do you believe him? Do you believe that God's abundant life is really as good as life can get? Or as another author put it, do you feel safe? Do you feel rich with God alone? 
Safe and rich is about as good a summary of the good life, the life that I want, as I've ever heard. Safe means free from anxiety and fear and doubt. Rich means possession the things that matter the most to me. I know these things matter a lot to me, safe and rich, because of how often in my pursuit of them I justify turning to not gods. I can tell how badly I want them, safe and rich, because of how often I'm prone to abandon God to find them. Sure, I include God. But I sometimes do not live as though I believe life in God alone is safe enough and rich enough. I want God and my control and some worldly affirmation and some safety nets. Isaiah will contrast several things in this chapter as part of a fundamental comparison between these two lives. My life, my ways, my loves, the approach of my choosing, and the life that God offers in himself. A life that is lived every day with real trust in God's promises. Now the only way that we will choose life in God is if we believe what he says about that life. And that's never more so true than during times of uncertainty and trial. Another writer said it plainly, if we actually live by faith in God, it means we follow him out of our ways and into his adventures. Chapter 28 is for Judah. It's for God's people. It's for the remnant, ultimately. It's for us. And it considers two nations, Judah and Israel. Israel is the Ephraim of verses 1 and 3. And Judah doesn't mind hearing, we never do, about the sin of her brother to the north. We're pretty good at finding that and pointing out. It's one of my favorite topics of conversations is what's wrong with you people. But when verse 7 says, these also, we're to understand that what's happening in Israel isn't staying in Israel. It's being imitated in Judah. Just as they were once a glorious flower of faith, that flower is fading in both kingdoms. You hear him say in sports that winning covers up a lot of problems. And in life, Success and prosperity do too. One of the reformers lamented how difficult it is to terrify and humble those who have been blinded by prosperity. Success covers our eyes. In Israel, they were carelessly overindulging in their success. They lived without fear for God or any other threat. And that complacency and godlessness is what would bring great trouble. And Judah, seeing this happen in Israel decades before it would happen to them, should have received the warning. But when it came, the downfall of the northern kingdom, they were too busy celebrating Ephraim's downfall to see and recognize that the same judgment was headed their way if they didn't change. Isaiah has been shown what's coming. 
And he calls out to God's people to repent. He warns them of the judgment that's to come. And within this, as a token of grace to a faithful few, he reiterates God's commitment to save them and his power to see that promise through. He gives them everything they should need to trust God and to choose life in him. The first eight verses present the contrast of two ways of living. Life under two different crowns, or lords as it is. Crowns is the word used three times in those six verses. One is the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim, used in verses 1 and 3. And that language isn't just about drunkenness, though that's part of it. The drunkenness is a shorthand for this way of living, this life that is so intoxicated with pleasure and luxury that it shuns understanding and trivializes all that matters, a life that gives more weight to fun than to holiness, to internet likes than to the approval of God. I might have added that part. The other crown is that of the Lord of hosts in verse 6. Its beauty is justice. Nothing trivial, but justice itself. And holiness is its true strength. When life in the presence of God is the safety, and the fruits of the Spirit are the riches, does that life sound abundant enough for God's people to trust him. When not, we give more credit and we ascribe more glory to the crown of Ephraim, the crowns of this world, the life it offers. That also speaks to the second contrast, where we think wisdom is found. In a Sunday school class, we would all likely say that God's word is of more value than anything the world has to say. But Israel and Judah would have said that too. The real question was, which did they rely on? Which did they spend more time with? Which truly informed their thoughts, words, and actions? When things were going well, and especially when they weren't, who would they listen to? They listened to the world. They did what the world would do. Verses 9 and 10 are the words, Isaiah using the words of his own critics who had little interest in what he had to say. Can you believe this guy? They would complain. Do you hear the way this guy's talking? He's talking to us like we're idiots, like we're children. He's a broken record. He just says the same thing over and over again. That's that precept by precept, word by word. They're mocking him. No, they would listen to the people who told them what they wanted to hear. They would listen to themselves because we always seem right in our own eyes. The voice of God was right there for them, but they wouldn't hear it. Instead, they mocked and they ridiculed. Isaiah will call them scoffers in verse 14. Those verses 9 and 10 in Hebrew is basically them mocking Isaiah with blah, 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 yada, yada, yada in Hebrew. His simple call to repentance and faith is pathetic to them. Simple, worthless, broken record. No, what we have are the right political alliances. Why do we need the word of God? What we have is plenty of money and food and drink. What need do we have of the word of God? With good planning 
And with power, why would we have to listen to what God says? And if we did, wouldn't it be something less? Wouldn't it take away what we love and leave us with something less? And then when there's a real threat in life, let's be honest, we need something more practical than God's word. That spiritual stuff is fine in its place, but when my life, when my family, or when my livelihood are threatened, God's word just isn't enough. And that's why Israel turns to Assyria, and then to Egypt, but never to God. And it's why we turn to... I'll let you fill that in. In verses 11 through 13, we see what God will do in response. Because they would not listen to Isaiah's easy-to-understand message, then the message would come next in a foreign tongue. Isaiah, in their own language, said, God's wrath is burning against our sin. Beware the judgment. Turn and repent. And since they wouldn't listen, since they wouldn't turn and repent, God will send the exact same message. My wrath is burning against you in judgment. But he'll send it through the Assyrian tongue in conquest and invasion. Because God will always vindicate his word. And his word is always enough. You know the Hittites. You've heard of them in reading the Bible. The people group recorded in 2 Kings. A nation the Bible says was as powerful for a time as Egypt. What you may not know is the historical controversy around them. Because for a long time, mainline history had no room for them in the timeline of Egypt. And so many unbelieving scholars had concluded that there was no such thing. They were an Old Testament myth made up by the Judeans to have an imaginary enemy for their mythical religion. And some historians who did believe God's word did some digging, historically and then literally, like archaeology. And long story short, the historian's timeline of the history of Egypt, now everyone agrees, turned out to be completely wrong. And the Hittites were proved to be just as scripture said about them. Let it never surprise us when God steps in to defend his word. By continuing by its continuing presence and emphasis, we should know that his word is primary and should be primary in our lives. He revealed himself to Adam and Eve in the garden at the beginning. He revealed himself to Abraham and made a covenant. He gave his law to the people at Sinai. He sent the prophets like Isaiah to his people here. He caused all of scripture to be written and preserved and handed down for our hearing. Do you not think that God cares about his word? Why don't we? What was Judah hearing instead? It's the word of the nations. It's the word of the culture. It's the word of their own desires. You know what would be a really scary analysis? I don't think we could do it, which is good, because I really don't want to. I was thinking about it this week. What if we tracked for a week all of the words we consumed from every source, everything we read and listened to and watched and talked in conversation, what if we cataloged the source of every single word we encountered for a week? Where would scripture rank? What percentage of the words with which we surround ourselves day to day come from the word of God? Or when safety 
or riches are at risk? Which words do we use to inform our feelings and our actions? Which words are we really listening to? The final contrast, 14 through 22, is one of outcomes. But it's not the outcome in eternity for belief versus unbelief. Isaiah covers that elsewhere. What Isaiah focuses on here for outcomes is very much the result of which crown and which words you prioritize in this life. Israel tried to make herself secure in the alliances she had made with other nations, but these were really, as God calls them, covenants of death. Whatever comfort and hope they provided was false. In the end, they would offer no real security. They were flimsy and destined to fail. The language in this section is really restless and frustrated. It's beautiful poetry. It's uneasy. It's unsettled. Verse 20, I hope, made you chuckle. The idea of a bed that's too short, a blanket that's too narrow. You've found that before. What's supposed to be a place of peaceful rest ends up bringing frustration and exhaustion. God offered Judah salvation, safety, and riches in him. And so did not God. In this case, Assyria and then Egypt. Who would they believe? Who did they believe actually had more to offer them? More of what they really wanted. Who had riches in store for them? Who had safety? And God says, I laid a cornerstone in Zion. What's the opposite of a covenant of death? Of flimsy promises, of a bed that's too small. It's a cornerstone in Zion. It's a solid rock upon which his people can stand. It's a sure foundation to withstand the storms of this life. It's the kind of security, verse 21, that snatched victory out of the jaws of defeat at Mount Perizim against the Philistines. The Israels were supposed to remember And at the valley of Gibeon against the Amorites, the Israelites were supposed to remember. Do you want a life that is rich and abundant? Do you want a life that is safe and secure? Then set aside your own life and live this life. Life in God. Verse 16, a stone, a tested stone, Haven't you seen God's word put to the test? Haven't you seen his promises prove true? A precious cornerstone, a sure foundation. Haven't you seen the flimsiness of the world's promises? The false sense of security that ultimately unravels around us with our own schemes and plans. A sure foundation. Whoever believes will not be in One pastor observes the mentality of faith is not all a flutter. It will not be driven. It will not freak out. It will not be scurrying here and there in frantic self-salvation because faith in Christ can stand up to anything. There's an easy way to be tossed around in this life. Restless. Frustrated, fearful, unsettled. Live the world's life for you. 
value what it values, listen to its words, trust in it to save you. But don't fool yourself into thinking that that life is more abundant than anything. That life, the rich and safe life, is only found in God. When the things of God are our glory, we value them more than anything the world offers. What do you value of the world more than what God has? That's probably not an empty list for any of us. May God put those to death in us. May he change our affections. When his word is our most precious aid, who are we listening to? What words are we surrounding ourselves with in the peaceful moments and in the clutch, in the moment of truth? What is really influencing how we feel about our circumstances and what we do in response to them? And when we trust him enough to follow him out of our ways and into his adventure. Some of you have been on adventures before. Many of you have adventures with some precarious moments. (laughs) Cliffs from which that is a long way down. Powerful waves, parachutes we trust will open, fast curves. And for just a moment, each as scary as any of the hard and unexpected things God puts into the paths of our lives. But unlike in those adventures, where we really don't know what will happen. (laughs) If we trust God, we have nothing else to fear. Trusting him, we can know we are entirely secure. I can go splat on the bottom because I took too adventurous of a risk, bungee jumping, but nothing, no thing can happen to me in this life that he is not using to make me rich in him. Isaiah concludes with the farmer, verse 24, to make two comforting points. I hope these will comfort your heart this morning. He talks about a simple farmer who knows when he plows the fields, when he creates that upheaval and that chaos, he knows that it's for a good purpose, that it's necessary, that it's only temporary. Yes, it's destructive, but it's part of the adventure that will eventually bring forth a harvest. And how does he know this? Because God taught him. The God who plows the fields of our lives into chaos as well. And there in verse 27, he also knows that each of his crops need something different. Because we are different. And he does for each, not what another needs, but what it needs. And so one author concludes, God must do in each of us the work that is necessary to bring about his eternal purposes. He knows for each of us just what tool to use and when to use it. The same God who taught the farmer this about his fields knows what every one of us needs, and it's hard. It's sometimes painful. Yet God knows what he's doing with each one of us and every one of our lives. He's not, wish for it as we might, 
He is not working to make us happy in every moment. He's working to make us more like Christ so that on the day of his coming, we can be happy in him forever. Israel and Judah struggled to believe. In the good times, they struggled to believe they needed God because look how good it was. And in the dangerous times, they struggled to believe they needed God because look how dangerous it was. Is he really enough to save us? What will it cost us to choose him? And their unbelief cost them dearly. Not just in the world to come, but as Isaiah said, in every day of their lives. Will you believe instead that God is enough? That the riches and the safety he offers are more abundant than you could find anywhere else? The remnant here in Judah had a long time to wait before their troubles would be over. They had a long time to wait to see Christ come to conquer death on their behalf. But Isaiah says that for them to enjoy life in God now, they just had to trust in him. They didn't have to wait. And neither do we.